this is the Gartner Sales Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Brent Adamson, and welcome to the Gartner Sales Podcast, the podcast where I sit down with our best thinkers, researchers, and leaders from across the company to share with you both the practical tips and the most up-to-date strategic insights that you'll need to sell more effectively, especially in a time of deep disruption like today. And my guest to have that conversation today is our very own uh, executive partner, Maria Bolden. Maria, welcome back to the podcast. It's fabulous to have you here. Dr. Adamson, it is wonderful to be here. (laughs) Fabulous. All right, well, let's get going. Maria, if there was ever a time of deep disruption like today, I think we're in it. Of course, then again, we've been in it for, I don't know, two years, two and a half years. But the particular disruption we want to talk about today um, less pandemic, um, uh, although it's been on everyone's minds for, you know, ever, uh, it seems. But let's talk about global supply chain disruptions and what That's pretty it's disruptive. Doing. It is, and it's crazy what's going on. Um, can, can you just sort of from your perspective, I want to talk to you about, because this is not your first rodeo on supply chain disruptions. You've been down this road before. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. But maybe let's maybe paint the picture just very briefly of just what's going on. I mean, the, I think one of the best images I can imagine of sort of capturing what's going on with supply chain disruptions it's just the, what, the now 60, 65 ships, container ships sitting outside of the port in Los Angeles waiting to, to get in. But can you maybe just paint the picture a little bit of what you're seeing and hearing as you talk to our chief sales officers across the practice of what, just the different ways that the supply chain constraints are, are just sort of manifesting? Yeah, absolutely, Brent. I mean, certainly it, we've... I hate to say we've never seen it this bad before because every time you say that, it just seems to get worse. Um, you know, but when it's taken three times as long to unload a ship through a U.S. port and demand is protected to be high through Chinese New Year at minimum, not to mention some of the things we're projecting through our own supply chain practices, it's bad. And, it, and unfortunately, there's not an end in sight. So what we're talking a lot about with our chief sales officers, chief revenue officers, chief commercial officers is you know, okay, how, how do you manage this for the long term? Because in all honesty, you know, when I was dealing with in, this in DuPont, you at least had a reasonable sight line to when things were going to get better. You could at least say, okay, when I see, you know, in about three months or, or when these particular actions happen or these events occur, we'll be all right. And, and this is what we're going to do in the meantime. It was temporary and we knew it was temporary. So we've got some extrapolation of the circumstances to say, okay, this is when we think it's going to end, but it's not as soon as it would be from, for example, a self-inflicted supply chain challenge or some raw material shortage that was event related, you know, some episodic thing. So this is definitely different. Now you got me really kind of, <laughs> yikes, because this really is systemic, right? It isn't one company running out its factory, right? This is this is much more, well, systemic. But so let me, let's um let's do this real briefly. What are some of the surprising ways that the supply chain shortage or, or disruption is, is, is showing up uh, across? So, you know, the first place I think you and I saw it, one of the first places was building materials, right? So we have a number of clients in the building materials industry. They just couldn't get lumber. And we've all, you know, we're all, I imagine, familiar with that story. Um, then we see it, of course, in ships and what's doing the automotive industry, what it's doing to anything that's got ships in it. What are some of the places maybe the supply chain constraints are showing up uh, in, in, in where downstream effects, secondary effects that, that have surprised you a little bit, perhaps? Sure. Even any? tertiary effects. I mean, yeah. take the chip shortage, since that seems to be such a popular one so far. You know, I don't think it, any of us have missed the fact that when you drive past a, a car dealership, even mm-hmm. if it's used cars, the lot is empty. There are yeah. no cars available and there's great, you know, 
examples of people ordering cars and getting them six to eight months later. Well, you know, follow the thread on that one. If there aren't cars being sold, then the financial services associated with people getting loans for cars to be sold. The advertising that car dealers and companies make to drive those sales aren't happening. So whether it's broadcasting and you're not getting your advertising material, you know, deals or, you know, the people who give loans to cars and you're not getting those loans. Think about what happens after that. The people who sell advertising, the people who manage loans and go out and get them or anything like that. I mean, there's two pretty major sectors that the demand just dried up and there's no end in sight of when it's coming back. You know, it, I don't even know if that's a secondary impact. It might be more like a tertiary one. Yeah. You know, I don't think any one of them would have looked at the chip shortage back when, when some of this started to manifest and say, wow, I got to be worried about that. You know, it's um, neither you nor I are an economist, so we could be careful not to make economic projections per se. But it's scary because, it's like, I just hear the word recession and everything you're saying, or at least potential. Therefore, so it'd be really interesting to watch how this happens at a macro level. What about sort of at the micro level? Uh, let's flip it on its head for just a quick second. Which is, are there who wins in this world? Whenever there's great disruption, there's there's losers, of course, or just people who struggle. But there's there's usually some weird winner that you haven't. So one example I heard actually within this specific example is car dealers can now it's supply and demand. Supply is down, demand is maybe not down. So therefore, I can literally charge more for my cars. And so the margins that dealers are getting on their cars are actually for the first time actually allow them to have a survivable business for a change. So. Which is interesting. I, have you seen any other upsides or is it now it's, it's just all bad bread? Any thoughts on that? There, there are for sure. Of course, you got to watch. There's also pocket. There's a lot of pockets of losers and there's a lot of self-inflicted losers because as demand gets smaller, a lot of people are chasing it with price, which is obviously a death spiral and nobody wins. Uh, but definitely there are people who are winners. And, and I think it really galvanizes the fact that fortune favors the bold. There's people out there who have no demand and no place to sell what they have. So they create something. You know, I think about some of our friends in commercial real estate, which most people would think is an absolute firestorm right now. And it is for most. And, and we've got partners that are actually creating a space, creating an offering to guide corporate leaders through what is clear what is clearly one of the most uncertain times not the least of which with regard to what kind of real estate footprint they keep but they're they're using this as a time to drive yeah. that well does the does the same thing happen when supply evaporates and so i i can see like when 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 demand evaporates i can i can find new ways to generate demand to your point about the you know, fortune favors the bold 100 agree with you there but if I've got, what happens in a world where there's just nothing to sell as opposed to no there one are, to buy it? There are, and it's the, the ones that find ways there? to stay relevant. And I know that sounds obvious and axiomatic, but it's not hmm. easy to do when you have no product or offering to sell. So what is the right. insight? What is the, and, and maybe it's a great time to launch something that you've been sitting on and weren't sure of the right market timing, or maybe thought that it wasn't going to work for an old circumstance. And now there's a new circumstance where it will. But I think fortune favors the ones who are willing to take a risk with either something that they thought might not be ready for prime time, but could be now, or holds those prospects and old clients with insight, with guidance, with, with a, a visibility to the world the way it is that disaggregates some of the chaos and confusion and helps them see their way. So even though they may not have a product offer, 
you can guide them in a way that leads them to you ultimately when you have it again. And frankly, the best sellers right now are figuring out the timeline and work plan that gets customers to that point. Like, okay, these are the things we're gonna watch together. These are the indicators that are gonna tell us that we need to have that contract done by this date, and this is how we're gonna mobilize against it. And they're mapping that plan, not just to keep them interested and engaged, but so that when they finally are out of this or whatever this is, they've got an execution plan that they can actually go do. It's um, It feels a little bit like, a, what can we do while we sit in this holding pattern? We're circling the airport, but hey, we can play cards. <laughs> That's un- yeah, it's unfair. Definitely don't stay out of the customers. <laughs> you, got, you got to find a way to stay relevant, stay relevant. not annoying, yeah. not engaged. We don't need any more inbox you know, flow, but you've got to figure out something compelling yeah. to make them engage you. And I know that sounds obvious. All right, let me... G- no, it doesn't. I think it's important. But let me get your reaction to this statement, slightly different story, which is what a great time to just jack up your prices. I mean, it's again, it's just it's demand and supply. Uh, good idea, bad idea. Thoughts on that? I, again, I'd, it'll be different for different companies. But tell me your thoughts just broadly. People, people who know me know that I have often been associated with the quote, I love raising price because I can. <laughs> Um, and, and I'm not going to be embarrassed or, or shy away from that, but there is a thoughtful way to do it that is not in your face and obvious. And it certainly isn't tied to the anchor around your neck of raw material prices or, or you know, some of the things that we're seeing with logistics and freight, because the minute you start tying a price increase to that, you've sealed your own fate of watching it crumble when all those things go back to normal, because customers will remember. But it is a great time to extract the, the value for the things that you are doing in a very unapologetic, but not like I said, shameful in your face way because you can. So, and, and there's ways to message that before, during and after an increase that shows you are making yourself part of a better solution that may involve, for example, a higher price, but a lower cost or a safer position or a de-risked position. Do your homework and float it out there the right way and manage it, as I said, before, during, and after the, the increase so the customer doesn't feel had. Oh, I get the broader point. I'm 100% with you because, right, if you if you burn your customer on the way up, they're going to burn you right back on the way back down, right? So, But but tell me about this Jedi mind trick. How do you, how do you get your customer to essentially accept a higher price? <laughs> but make them feel good about it. This is essentially what I heard you saying. I was like, what? What kind of voodoo is this? Tell, tell me more. Obviously, this is circumstantial, but there are lots of, let me give you an example of a few times where I had to do this with my teams and, and we drove it the right way. It might be, you know what, DuPont, has, well, I'm not, I shouldn't use DuPont examples, but it's the only examples I have. We've gone 13 years without a price increase and we've innovated and we've developed and we've supported and we've partnered since then, it's time. Now that's a pretty extreme example, but a real one. Um, But other things that we have done, for example, if you're driving innovation, if you're trying to introduce new technology, if if you are trying to introduce an offering or a go-to-market model that benefits both, whether it's driving deeper downstream or creating a new part of the market, there are lots of discussion choreographies that take the eye off of price and helps look at things like total cost of ownership that will be lower or more opportunity that will be higher. 
the types of things that help customers win where, yeah, you're going to have a higher price point. We know that goes to your cost position, but here's all the things that are going to help your top line. Here's the things that are going to make you more efficient. When you make it about them, it always gets to the right answer. Well, so let's not, I know I don't want to get too nostalgic and just kind of get in the way back machine just for gratuitous fun, although it's, it is fun to do this with you. But the, uh, so for those listeners who may not know Maria or of Maria, Maria was the, one of the heads of sales at, at DuPont for, for many, many years, a long, illustrious, I can't think of a better word. It was a really, a very successful, illustrious career at DuPont as the chief sales officer. And Maria, I remember many, many years ago, you and I have known each other a long time, but I remember it's probably, I don't know, 12 years ago or so. I was up in Wilmington um, and I came by to see you because uh, I was up there for some other reasons. And, and so we just, you know, found an hour and I came into your office and you look stressed out of your mind. <laughs> and this is when you were doing, you were the head of sales for the photovoltaic uh, a team, right? Selling essentially the solar, the solar panels, right? Selling uh, uh, inputs to solar panels. And you were, you were just not having a good day. And I asked what was wrong. And you said, well, I've got a problem. I said, what's that? You said, I got nothing left to sell because my sales reps would be so effective. You've sold out the plant. So so this is, to your point earlier, it's a micro example, not a systemic or macro example, but you've been in the seat before where, where you have supply constraints. And I'd love to maybe, can you just share, because a lot of what you speak with today is you speak with such conviction on this topic because you've been there. And so I'd love to get your, without going back and telling the whole story, because that's pretty much the basic outline of the story. But w- what did you learn from that experience? Because it, it, it was not easy, was it? No, not at all. And it's funny, I probably the last 15 years of my career, every single one of those years had a supply shortfall of a major like flagship brand of our portfolio. And I think one of the biggest things I learned is to a non-salesperson, they would say, how is this a problem? You, you're like got the best job in the world. You don't have anything to sell. Right. You're sold out. <laughs> you can raise price. You can play golf. You can go off and do whatever you want to a sales professional. And, and there had to be, hold on, I got to ask you, there had to be a little element of like, uh, yeah, I sold out <gasps> the plant again. I'm that yeah, that lasted you know? about a second. <laughs> a little... <laughs> you realize, well, I'm not going to get, you know, we're all, you know, these are days of, of variable compensation actually, yeah. and salespeople seeing what they could make and can't because they can't hit that higher number. Or, you know, mm, the same people yeah. that closed the sale have to go apologize for not being able to fulfill the order and don't make, there's no mistake here. You get the crap That's beat tough. out of you when you have to do that. And it's painful and you feel awful and you're pissed off. And, you know, the biggest revelation and learning for me over that time is this is probably one of the hardest times for a true sales professional. I'd rather be under the gun with no demand than be under the gun with no supply. Tell me more, because that again, I've heard you. I've heard this riff from you a couple times, and I think the thing that's so interesting is how surprised is not that because I would have been equally surprised. But your takeaway is like this has a when you run out of supply, this has a very high potential to do some significant damage to the morale of your sales force, doesn't it? On every level, because number one, again, they're getting beaten to shreds by by their customers because those customers need whatever it is they were buying from you. They also start to lose trust in you as a leader mm-hmm. and as you are co- in your company and the ability to supply what we are on to supply, even if it's not self-inflicted. If it's just, I can't procure the enough mm-hmm. raw materials to supply this, or things are locked up in the port and I can't get my ships unloaded, it doesn't matter. Your employees are looking to you to manage that. So this is one of those times where transparency and congruency have never been more important because how you message the reps, how you keep them looking to the horizon 
that will tell them that things are changing for the better or not, how you keep them change ready and mobilized and in it with their hearts has all the difference, makes all the difference in the world because this is a really hard time for them. And trust is one of the biggest things that you have to lose that'll hurt your business far more than the transactional things you're losing now. And you, so you mentioned trust and you, you also mentioned transparency and congruency. I would imagine that's where the trust comes from is that, so, but tell me if I'm wrong on that, but tell me what you mean by congruency maybe. And then also where do the, where's the trust? What can you do to build or maintain? Hopefully you've built it already, but to maintain that trust. You know, there's there's an interesting yin and yang in the commercial world. And I say this with all respect to my supply chain colleagues, but in times like this, the supply chain is looking for maximum flexibility with regard to when they can close an order, you know, ship against an order and, and maximum, mm-hmm. I don't want to say lack of visibility, but the less information you give to a customer or the sales team on when they can expect an order, of course, the more flexibility you have to be able to ship, right. you know, oh, wow, this came in. I didn't expect it. Let's get it out fast. Or, gee, we didn't hit that deadline I thought was going to happen. I'm glad I didn't tell anybody. So, so it's the difference between over-promising and under, under-delivering versus delighting your customer with, it came in sooner than we expected, right? It's, a, it's kind of, yeah. And frankly, when you're in the kind of situation we're in now, being wrong because mm-hmm. you're early is just as bad as being wrong right? because you're late. Why is that? Yes. No, because yeah. you can't plan. You can't plan. I mean, think about your channel partners. You're you're throwing working capital at them. They didn't expect you're going to pass it yeah. through to the client. Maybe they already changed their manufacturing plans. Maybe they already changed their plans with what they were going to do with your, your people or your product or whatever. Maybe they went to a competitor and now you're telling me I didn't have mm-hmm. to do that. I mean, there's there's just no winning when you're that wrong. Now, if you can, and your and your sales, and to your point, your sales reps are the ones that have to have those conversations. Unfortunately, our sales reps have to be practically supply chain professionals now, which none of them have been set up to be. So, the better we can equip them with the right information, and be by congruency, I mean, give them the same message that you're giving your uh, that you're giving and receiving with your supply chain with your customer service mm-hmm. team with your customers with your channel partners everybody has to be on the same sheet of music they have to have the same information now there are times of course that as an executive there's information you cannot share that doesn't mean that right. you share it with some and not with others or or filter it i actually you do filter it but it's got to be the right level of filter and a consistent message or people will get confused or again they won't trust you because everybody's going to know what's out there word travels so if you're not congruent you're going to get caught up in that it's you know it's one of those lessons like yeah that makes sense but then you really think about the practical way that you have to carry that out it's actually it's hard well and a lot of leaders knee jerk to saying well i just won't say much and then you really drive them crazy because then they're completely out there exposed and vulnerable. But but I don't want to say much because I don't want to be incongruent. You see how it's like a chicken and egg yeah. sort of thing. It's it's a, it's a really so hard So what's thing a manage. seller going to do? Right. Because you know sellers talk, mm-hmm. so they're going to make up their own thing. And that's the one of the worst things that can happen. You have to drive the discussion choreography before your competitors do. Or your or your salespeople make something up. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, so you've taken the time to put a lot of these thoughts together in um, in a white paper that's or a, a note as we like to call them at Gartner. It's available on Gartner.com. It's entitled "How CSOs Can Mitigate the Impact of Supply and, and Demand Disruption." So you looked at both sides in this in this note. Uh, we'll stick to supply for now, 
And by the way, we won't even begin to talk about talent and supply of talent. Let's let's park that maybe for the, another podcast and we'll talk about the talent shortage. But but as part of this note, uh, you've laid out uh, effectively a, a table or at least a, a series of uh, categories, three categories of considerations that one needs to have in mind as you mitigate the impact of supply disruption. So there's planning, there's channel execution, and there's sales execution. Some of these we've hit on already, at, maybe at least at a high level. Maybe we take those three columns one at a time, uh, or those three categories one at a time, Maria. So in, in terms of planning, I, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the note here. I'll pull out a couple, but you know, the the first of all, to review available inventory, to redirect, re, excuse me, re, redirect. There it is, where where needed. Frequent open order reporting. Uh, we, we talked about the congruency point, but just broadly speaking, have we have we kind of hit on the points under planning, that, or is there one or two more that you'd pull out there that you think are critical? I think we have. I think the the overarching theme here is that you know you're the CSOs, CRs, we're not the doers, but you've got to create an infrastructure for the doers mm-hmm. to be able to operate. And in most cases, you know, orders are going to be on a first in first out yeah. or something like this. You've got to set the priorities for your team. That says, you know, you're going to differentially manage in times of short supply. Who's going to get the product? Who's going to wait? And and sometimes even to give criteria on an order basis to say, say, look, this is a key account. They always supersede, even if somebody else was in line before that. Right. Or, you know, this is a price buyer. They're going to wait, and you're going to make sure you tell them why they're waiting. And you've got to make sure those messages are clear, not just to your own sellers, not just to your own customer service team, but to the supply chain, because they're wired for first in, first out. Wait, I already have this order. I'm going to fill that one, or this one's easier. You've got to make that clear and plan across the functions and have everybody hold that. It goes back to your transparency point, too. I I think it's a really powerful message to go to a customer and say, you lost your place in line because of the way you've chosen to partner with us over time. Is that Again, is that... Boy, one, it's a hard message to deliver too. Does it just sound snarky and bitter or is it? No, actually, no, that's the- I love sending that message because <laughs> most, no, I mean it. Yeah. And I mean that genuinely, not because it's, you know, trying to be nasty or snarky, but you know, most people aren't in this hit it and quit it mode. Some are, but in most cases you're trying to establish in, in complex B2B sales, you're in it for a partnership. You're in it for the long haul, not just the first complex sale, but all the ones that come after that. And if you've got somebody who who doesn't feel like they're in a monogamous relationship that really doesn't want reciprocity, that just wants to take, now's a really good time to say, you know what, I can't give right now. And here's why. And it's a great time to get the the relationship back on the track you want it to be it's on. It's so fascinating to watch what's happening in the automotive industry right now because the tier, well, the, the automotive uh, the automotive companies who've just been as you know, because you lived in this world, they're just years, decades of just beating the bleep out of their their tier one, their tier two suppliers, and just squeezing them for every penny. Now, okay, I might be snarky there. Right, like, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating what's happening in automotive, right? Because it's kind of shoes on the other foot now, isn't it, buddy? I mean, there's I don't know any anyone in the supply chain for automotive that has any mercy whatsoever for the, for for automakers right now. I, it's, and, and it's your earlier point about. This stuff comes home to roost. We're all in this playing the long game, and this is where the long game crushes you if for bad past performance, doesn't it? Yep. But here's a great chance to shape the long game coming forward because right. we know that one's not going to be very easy. 100%. So what a great time to say, look, the past is the past. We've learned from it. Here's what we need to move forward because we're all in this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environment. So here's how we partner together. Are you in? It's a great chance to lock those kind of conversations. 
Oh, you're such an optimist. Could this actually make the world a better place? I appreciate that. Okay, so so column number two or category number two, particularly important for someone with your background who spent an entire career selling through yep. channel partners um, is channel execution. So tell me a little bit what's on your mind here. You know, Brent, it's, it's a really great question. And I think this is where I really emphasize the partner in channel partner. Um, they're not just your distributor or your broker or your agent. You really have to think about them as your partner and they have to think of you as theirs. And that's where, just like with your sales team and your functional peers, priorities have to be well understood. Execution mode, you have to be on the same page. So, you know, if, if a pertinent, certain account is strategic and they're getting preference for product, the distributor has to recognize that and honor it as well. If the distributor has acted like a gatekeeper, for example, or the agency or the broker has been preventing you from accessing a client, well, let's face it, the end user probably wants information from the supplier. So how do you partner with your distributor, your agency, your broker, whatever, to have that transparency across the channel all the way down to the end user? so that they're not feeling that the environment is any more, you know, volatile, uncertain, comple confusing, complex, or ambiguous than it needs to be. And that's where distributors can sometimes cloud that. All the VUCA stuff, right? So well, the, 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 the one could argue, and I imagine you would agree, that's the kind of relationship you should have with your channel partners anyway. So maybe this is the moment where it's the, the finally, the, 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 what's the the yeah. urgency driver the opportunity to finally well, get this right? Would you agree, or is it? Like, yes. Well, I no, know it is. Or, or is I mean, is, is this the kind of relationship you should have with your partners all the time, or is no, no? This is different. No, right? this is Brent, this is a temporary. You are thing. exactly right. This is a perfect. Just like it's okay. a great time to galvanize your relationship with the accounts you're targeting, it's a great chance yeah. to establish the type of partnership you want with your channel yeah. partners. And and we all know that those relationships go off the rails at some point, and maybe they were never on the rails and were just challenging. So now's a great time to either say, hey, look, this isn't working, we're gonna end it, or hey, look, mm -hmm. this isn't working, but there's so many more things we can do together. Let's, let's talk about what those are. And you know, if you're not getting point of sale data, if you're not getting access to, a, to an account, if you're not getting the type of partnership that you need to have even in normal times, it's not getting any easier. Now's the time to set that up. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's so helpful, particularly for those who sell it through distribution. Again, it's, there's, a, there's a really interesting lesson in this. Like, you know, if, if you've done your homework already, then most of this will just be in place already. But but if not, now's the time. The, the third of the three categories under sales execution, I think we've hit on most of these points that you mentioned here um, yep. already to a degree or another around, you know, making sure your, your sales reps are able and having the right kinds of conversations with the customers. Um, there's one point here that I've heard you mention before around the CSO arbitrates. Yeah. In other words, you tell me more about that. So you, you as a CSO, one as a CSO is ultimately has to a CSO has to kind of play that that role of like final decision maker. I guess it's always true, is it? But I I got to figure that's that could be kind of hard here. But there has to be a <laughs> there has to be a King Solomon yeah. somewhere in this whole thing to make that. Final no, decision, you know it? what? Um, I think the the overwhelming the the ever present tightrope of do delegate, develop, and delete for a CSO. There's like the four things we live by. Um, really mm -hmm. get heightened here. We're not the doers, you know. 
we have yeah. to trust the leaders that we surround ourselves with, that we have in our line um, to do and to lead their people to do. But there are very yeah. specific times where we have to arbitrate, whether it's between business units or between regions or whatever. And that's where you have to be very careful not to abdicate your voice to someone else. So you've yeah. got to make sure the team understands, I am giving you the freedom to operate. You are the, the leaders and, and the doers of that respective thing. But when there is something to be decided, a, a, a deadlock to be broken, or, or something yeah. that involves, for example, two huge key accounts, you have to call that. Because otherwise yeah. people will be yeah, making no. rogue decisions that could bite you in the long run. And the last thing you want in this environment is rogue behavior. Particularly when we're talking about, you know, whether it's pricing and has huge implications on finance uh, and the financials of the company, or you're talking about supply chain has huge implications of, it's yeah. like dominoes start like falling all over the place, right? So, okay. So, um, and by the way, for those companies who may be listening and saying, well, maybe they're not listening anymore, but well, I don't have a supply chain problem. I sell software. This is just not an issue for me. What thoughts for them, Maria? It's like, yeah, oh, aren't you glad I don't have to worry about this? Or like, no, no, hold on there. Uh, here's how it impacts you. I just, what would you say to uh, you know, someone Brent, like that? I think this goes back to where we started, which is when this all began, we could have never begun to anticipate the secondary and tertiary and whatever comes after tertiary yeah. impact of what we're facing. You know, in my experience with shortfalls, whether self-inflicted or market-induced, we tended to have mm -hmm. at least some sight line, some estimate of when it was going to end. We don't necessarily have that now. So if you're not being affected by whether it's a, a, a raw material shortfall or a talent shortfall or a logistics challenge, you should think about a pre-mortem of what the conditions would be for you to see yeah. those types of challenges to, to hitting your top line. What kind of things would have to happen, whether it's you know not having enough people or not having enough partnership support or whatever, to affect your ability to drive the top line profitably. Because that's the type of thing you know, that, that we all need to be able to do better now than ever, and that's anticipate. A hundred percent. You know, at, at a high level, you know, the, one of the lessons we've learned out of this whole supply chain crisis, for lack of a better word, um, is how brittle of the supply chain it really is, the global supply chain is. And the- uh, Well, it was designed that way to well, save costs. 100%, right? We, we, we sacrifice stability for costs. Exactly right, right? And so it, it does make me wonder if we just extrapolate from there, the question for every chief sales officer, and really, really for every executive right now, is just how brittle is your organization right now? You know, and what other force or forms of brittleness uh, are, are sort of nascent in your organization that you may not see until until it snaps, uh, like we've just seen in supply chain. Last thing, Maria, the, um, uh, and again, the note on Gartner.com is how CSOs can mitigate the impact of supply and demand disruptions. And we'll, of course, link that to uh, the, the show notes for any client of Gartner so you can access it. So it's a really great overview. I, I, as you know, Maria, uh, <laughs> I joke all the time, it's like there's, if there's one topic you can put on the table for sales leaders and kiss an hour of conversation goodbye, it's compensation. So at the risk of, we're not going to go another. I just want to just give me a, like, because like, you, you actually talk about this at length and you have, there's a really nice decision tree on compensation in this note around decision tree to adjust comp or not to adjust comp during demand and our supply shortfalls. Can you just give me, without going through the details of the, the, the note, tell me how you think about comp 
in a, in a time of disruption like this is whatever you do, don't touch it, stay with, or no, like whatever you do, advise, like, how do you know where to begin with your compensation sure. structure in a situation well, I, like this? Of course, we all know this is the cornerstone of trust. When you, when you start affecting how people right. make money, um, you, you can win them or lose them pretty darn quickly. I think the key is to always keep in mind, did the sellers do anything to get in this situation? Is it in their control? Is mm. it out of their control? You know, obviously supply shortfalls are not in the control of the seller, maybe because they sold out the plant, but let, let's face it, they can't go make the plant produce more, make the freight carriers right. ship sooner, unload the ships. If it was out of their control, you have to make them whole. Wow, that even rhymes. So <laughs> I surprised myself. <laughs> that was but, fabulous. But keep in mind that happens on the upside too. If it is out of their control yeah. and they're selling like crazy, what did they do to earn that? And if the answer is mm -hmm. not much, then you may want to think about, I, I am never a fan of capping excellence pay ever, but yeah. you have to be pragmatic <laughs> in how you manage the pay architecture. Um, if they are going to get to, you know, double their variable, did they earn it? So that's what the decision tree is there to help you do but again you know what you do with their comp is going to make or break the trust they have in you so for example we yeah. talked to a, a cro earlier this week who knew going into this this fiscal year that his reps were going to get ravaged with lack of of available demand mm -hmm. he set them at quota from a comp standpoint mm. so they could get upside but they would not get under their, th I, he didn't set them at quota, but he set them at their threshold payout, right. the minimum they would make. So they would at least get a guaranteed amount of, of variable compensation. And with that, they absolutely didn't look down. So that he took that fear out. So think about what you can do for your reps to help them feel like the ground isn't slipping out from under them. Because if their livelihood is impacted, if their family is impacted, that's a big one. And if it's out of their control, then you, you have to step up and do something. You know, anybody worth their salt is okay with variable pay because you're a gamer and you want to drive it. But there are other things that affect that. And if those things are out of the control of the sales professional, you as the leader have to do something about it or they're not going to trust you. You know, there's I, there's the cynical side of me says, what, they're willing to live by the sword but not die by the sword. They want all the upside, none of the downside. But it's your point about control. Like, it's a one, if it's in their control, exactly. then downside, yes. But if it's not in their control, then then that's when you really have to use some more judgment about how you protect them that's and keep right. them whole. All right, so well, last question. Um, in a time when you got nothing left to sell, would you tell your sellers to stand down and stop selling? Or is that crazy talk? What thought on that? I, I would never suggest to a sales professional that they disengage with a customer, even if it's just selling. Which is different than stop selling, right? So that's interesting how you just, you you, you, you really just re-articulated my question. Tell me more, because that was a critical sort of re pivot. Exactly, because, well, first of all, you're going to sell everything that's not nailed down, including substandard material <laughs> or <laughs> reject material or something they didn't think they know they needed, but they really do. Um, but second of all, again, this is a perfect time to step in as the sense maker in this world of chaos to say, I know I don't have anything to physically transact with you, but I'm going to be your Sherpa at a time where everybody needs one and I'm going to help you see your way clear. And remember, what you are selling is your future, 
and you're mapping that future of how you're going to engage. Make sure you and those customers where you're not transacting have identified the points when you will begin transacting again. And I guarantee you those points, um, those points of engagement are going to happen way before you're actually transacting product, but you have to define when you're going to start transacting because you might have product again and they might say, well, hey, I'm already committed to your competitor. You're going to have to wait until the next buying cycle or you're going to have to wait until this happens. You can avoid that by doing the right things now and mapping out what you're going to do when you have supply for them. That's such a great place to leave it. It's such a critical point, which is, yes, you may not have something to sell right now, but do not disengage and certainly don't disengage for the sake of the future, if not for the present. So Maria, there's so much more to to consider. We'll obviously keep watching this as this situation unfolds over the course of not just the next few weeks, but the next few months, even quarters. It's, uh, it's a little unnerving to think how long this thing can go and what it might ultimately mean for us. But um, so we'll watch it. We'll watch it very carefully. But having your guidance and, and, and leadership and thought leadership on this is, um, is, is hugely appreciated and valued. So, Maria, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, really appreciate it, as always. And it's, it's always fun just to chat. So, Maria, thank you. It's a pleasure. People are going to remember not just what they experienced through this. They're going to remember what they did to make it better. So, I look forward to everybody being able to reflect on this and say, I did things I didn't think I was capable of doing, and it was really good. So good luck and thanks for having me. Absolutely. And again, for those who'd like to check out the note on Gartner.com, How CSOs Can Mitigate the Impact of Supply and Demand Disruptions is the name of the note. And some great insight there that uh, the, the decision tree on compensation in particular is uh, it's all fabulous. That's really like just so practical. So um, we'll make sure we link that in the show notes for, for Gartner clients. And until then, thank you all as always for joining us for this episode of the Gartner podcast, the Gartner sales podcast. It's fabulous to have you all here with us. And please, 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 until we talk again, take care of yourselves, take care of each other and stay safe, everyone. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company, equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations. 